For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. I feel like I, I need to give a word of explanation to those of you who may be new to this church. Uh, we have been for this year looking at the theme that you see on the posters on the wall, and that is turn your eyes upon Jesus. We discussed that at length in, in a leadership meeting and talked about nothing could perhaps be more worthwhile than spending the entire year looking at the author and the finisher of our faith, and that's Jesus himself. And so that's what we've been doing. And I've been presenting a lesson on the first Sunday morning of each month on the subject of follow me. We've talked about follow me, believe me, listen to me, obey me, and so on. And we're looking this morning at another aspect of our relationship to the Lord, and specifically through the eyes of the apostles that were with him, of course, during his three-and-a-half-year ministry. There are a number of people in this audience this morning who are teachers or professors and I know that one of the main reasons why you do what you do and why you love what you do is because of that moment when you see that light come on in the eyes of someone who's sitting in your classroom and, and, and that, uh, hey, I finally got it moment, that serendipity that they fully under or at least partially understand what it is that you're trying to communicate. And Jesus really experienced that the entire time he was on this planet. Uh, particularly with the apostles. You would think that they would be the first ones in line who would say, I understand exactly what he has come here to do. I understand his mission fully, and I'm totally on board with it. But that wasn't the case. In fact, if you'll read the first three verses of 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter, is, uh, as one of the apostles, acknowledges that it wasn't until after the resurrection that they fully got it. In fact, in verse 3, he says, Our hopes were made alive again by the resurrection of Christ from the dead. That means that their hopes had been dead. It has to be dead before it can be made alive again. And so when Jesus died on the cross, even the apostles said, okay, I guess that's the end of it. And his mission is, is, is now finished. But they did not understand until after he walked out of that tomb on Sunday morning. And so I, I want us to kind of look at it from that perspective this morning. And also to realize that, that we're going through the same kind of experience. I think every person who names the name of Christ and becomes a New Testament Christian has to acknowledge that somewhere in that, that uh, process of spiritual maturation, we, we, we come to understand what it is that God wants us to be doing while we're on this planet. I think most of us are familiar with the tortoise and the hare story. If you're not, then I'm going to let someone else tell you the particulars of it, and we're going to simply rely on basically the essence of that story. But everybody knows what it was that made the tortoise a winner in the race between the tortoise and the hare. And we know that it wasn't his good looks. It was not his family heritage. We know that it wasn't his political connection or it wasn't any kind of lucky breaks that he happened to get. We know that it was persistence that made the tortoise the winner in that race. But at the same time, how many of us have looked at, at someone that we consider to be successful and, and basically, maybe not out loud, but on the inside, we said, well, if I had her clothes or her looks or her connections, I'd be successful too. You know, it's easy to recognize the value of persistence when we look at the animal story, but not at the people story. And persistence is just that important. Not to persevere, to look at the other side of the coin for a moment, to, to not persevere, to quit, seems to be increasingly popular. 
That seems to be the default position that a lot of people in our culture and in fact around the world are in right now. If something goes wrong right up front, if there's the smallest glitch, if there's a little bit of a bump in the road, all of a sudden we're ready to throw in the towel and quit. Uh, to, if you start to sink, don't bail water, just jump out of the boat. Seems to be the prevailing philosophy with a lot of people. If things get out of hand, don't resolve them, throw in the towel. I know that's true with some marriages. I realize that there are a lot of people who've had a, a marriage dissolved, a breakup, who did everything that they possibly could to prevent that. But it seems that at least in America, it's the other side of that coin. There's the smallest problem in our marriage, and all of a sudden we're ready to bail on it. A dream is met with obstacles. Let's just quit. We've been talking about that for the last few Sunday nights. So something that you really believe in becomes difficult, and, and all of a sudden we say, let's just cut our losses and let's, and let's quit. But as Arthur Clarke once wrote, a faith that cannot survive a collision with truth is a faith that is not worth many regrets. And I believe he's exactly right about that. So the question that I want to pose this morning for our consideration, and I hope you brought your Bibles, you might as well be turning to Mark chapter 8, if you will. We're going to be reading specifically three episodes in the life and ministry of Jesus in which the apostles are seen in various stages of understanding and also commitment. And that's what we'll be doing for the next few minutes. But the question before each of us this morning really is the question that I just posed. When we come face to face with the truth, do we quit or do we persevere? And even when the truth is something that we consider to be rather uh, untasteful, that is something that we would rather not have to experience, that question seems to have been growing in the mind of Jesus. And it wasn't that Jesus ever questioned his own faith, but there were times when he had very real reasons to question the faith of his disciples. What would happen when the twelve uh, were all alone, when Jesus had left this planet and, and difficulties came? How, how would they fare? How would they, how would they deal with it with Jesus not there to say, now let me help you understand this and let me help you work through that difficulty? Will, will they endure or will they hang it up? And so I guess this isn't really what God wanted us to do. These men who had followed so readily and believed so strongly, will their faith survive a collision with the truth? And by that, I mean what Jesus ultimately was going to have to do in his ministry. Now, thus far in their relationship, Jesus had said to them things like, follow me, observe me, study me. And, and all of that is leading to, I want you to slowly begin to understand me. All of those things... Whenever he said, and we'll be reading some passages along this line, whenever he said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear, that was him telling his disciples or some other audience, I want you really to lock in on what I'm telling you. I want you to listen to the essence of the message that I'm trying to communicate to you. So he had given his apostles, those 12 men, the time and the opportunity to understand. That's why they were in such close proximity to him during that three and a half year ministry. That's why for those of them that were fishers, fishermen, he would walk by and say, leave your nets, follow me, because I'm going to make you a fisher of men. Do you think that they understood what he meant by that? A fisher of men? There probably there was some you know, eyebrow scrunching and head scratching when he said those kinds of things. But all of that was to lead them to understand that you, it's not going to happen overnight. 
It isn't you want to go to sleep one night and you've got all these questions and the next morning you wake up and, and all the questions have been answered. He was saying in essence to those apostles in particular, participate in my ministry in as much depth as you can and you will grow in the process as, as the responsibilities come. And they did that. I mean, when you see the, the beginning of Jesus' ministry, just being with him was exciting. I can remember early on when I first began reading, and I mean really reading the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, how exciting it was to see the kind of reaction that people had when Jesus began to, to teach, and especially when he began to work miracles among them, and, and, and people like Nicodemus and John 3 would come to Jesus and say, we, we know that you're a teacher who's come from God because nobody can do the mighty works that you're doing unless God be with him. I mean, people were enamored by Jesus, at least early on. And so that was an exciting process, and, and the apostles were able to share in that. And, and, and to see the crowds as he taught them, I mean, it really got their blood pumping. And indirectly, I think, the twelve felt the praise showered on Jesus by all the people. And they often experienced the same astonishment expressed by the crowds when they saw what Jesus did and when they heard what he taught. There were people that come and hear Jesus and, and they would walk away in amazement and say things like, no man has ever taught like this before. And don't you think that the apostles probably had the same feeling? We've never heard anything like this before. And so the twelve probably even took pleasure in, in those early conflicts with the religious officials, even as Jesus went toe-to-toe -to -toe with those scholars. And, and they probably got some kind of pleasure, don't you think, in seeing those men in, in their sanctimonious hypocrisy be put in their place sometimes by a word or by a question that Jesus would pose to them. They enjoyed watching Jesus give answers and ask questions that would silence and astonish the critics. And, and they would probably sit back with somewhat of a smile on their face as he saw Jesus put them in their place. It was easy to be with him then. But along the way, they began to brush up against the real truth of what Jesus' mission was all about. They began to hear hints of the difficulties that lay ahead in his, in his ministry. And to speculate that, that maybe Jesus' ministry here on earth is not going to end with a victory celebration in the apostles' locker room, if you know what I'm talking about. That we're not going to be, you know, spewing drink on one another. We're not going to be celebrating. That's not how this whole thing is going to end. Let me just give you a, a glimpse of, of some of that just from the book of Mark. Mark chapter 2, verse 20. You don't have to to look these up because you don't have time, I guarantee you. Mark 2.20, but the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. The implication is because there will be a reason to fast. The bridegroom will no longer be with them. Hmm, I wonder who the bridegroom is, and I wonder who those that are left behind are. They had to be wondering that those kinds of things. Mark 4.9. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Lock in on what I'm trying to tell you. Same chapter, verse 24. Consider carefully what you hear. Chapter 4, verse 41. This is all from the book of Mark. They were terrified and they asked one another, Who is this? Don't you think it a little bit ironic and somewhat puzzling that the closest disciples of the Lord, the twelve apostles, would be asking about him, Who is this guy? 
And then one more, chapter 8 of Mark, verse 15. Be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. Again, a, a head scratcher. Who is Jesus? Has he come to do what we really thought that he came to do, and that is sit on, on David's throne to restore power to the Jewish people, to throw off the shackles of Roman oppression, and to basically to be our next president? Is that really what he's going to do, or is it something else? They began to suspect that, that what they thought and what they wanted him to do is not exactly, and in fact, in some respects, not at all what he had come to do. And I can't tell you how disappointed they were. No wonder their hopes had to be made alive again by the resurrection, because none of it was playing out the way they thought it should play out. So let's look quickly at three episodes. Mark 8, verses 31 through 34, and we find ourselves here in Caesarea Philippi. Mark 1, 31. I'm going to read 31 and 32. Jump down to verse 34 for the sake of time. And he, he, Jesus, of course, began to teach them that the Son of Man, are you listening now? That the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. That isn't exactly what I would consider a pep talk among that core of men that you want to be on the same page and behind you every step of the way. Verse 32, he spoke this, this word openly. And then Peter, of course, took him aside and began to rebuke him. And, 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 and how that turns out is verse 33. Look at 34. And then Jesus had called the people in himself. And his disciples also, and he said to them, whoever desires to come after me, here are the conditions of discipleship. Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Jesus had been quiet about his identity for quite some time at the point when these words were written. He knew that words and sermons may, may at times fail because it requires that those who are listening really have ears to hear and not everybody did. Some people were there just to see the miracles. They were there to see the show. Some were there just to get fed. And others were there checking him out, potential disciples, but not real sure, you know, kind of on the bubble as to whether or not this guy has a message and a cause that is worth following. And so Jesus was kind of concealing his identity at the point when this passage was written. And, and he knew that, again, the words and the sermons could only go so far. You've got to have ears that are willing to not only listen and, and, you know, let all the sound waves hit the eardrum, but really to assimilate and incorporate the message that you're hearing. And so for months he had worked hard at, at living his identity for his apostles to see. Does that make sense? He didn't just sit down every day and say, okay, we need to have a staff meeting and I need to remind you that I am the Son of God and here's what I've come to do. He didn't do that. But he was showing them who he was and what he had come to do every day that they walked with him. So it was an object lesson. It was a visual aid. He was showing them by the way he, by the way he talked, by the way he walked, by the way he performed those miracles, the interactions that he had with people. And yet, though his disciples had seen him continually give his time and his energy and, and his emotion and his very life for people, they still did not see his ultimate goal. They did not get the big picture. They did not see that his serving style led directly to the highest form of service, and that's self-sacrifice. 
You know, we kind of, in life, believe what we want to believe, don't we? That is about matters that are not near so consequential as what we're talking about this morning, upon which our eternal destiny is not hinged. But in some things in life, we just go, well, you know, I'm more comfortable thinking this way than thinking that way because that way creates some problems. And that's kind of what the disciples were doing. They did not get the big picture because they, they did not want to acknowledge where all of this ultimately would lead, and that is self-sacrifice. And finally, Jesus spoke clearly and directly to them. In fact, he was so clear that it was sometimes difficult to listen to, and he told them that the success of his mission, that the success of his mission required his death. We're now at the point where he's telling those disciples, listen, I got to die. I can't stay here forever. And I know that we've become close, and I appreciate all that you've done for me during my ministry, but I got to go away. This is all a part of the plan, and I'm going to die. I've said this a number of times from this pulpit. I want to repeat it so that this will be really ingrained in our minds. Jesus never, though, prophesied or predicted his death without also predicting his resurrection. But whether they got both of those pieces of vital information or not and really assimilated it to the degree that they fully understood, oh, now now I know what he's here for. I don't think so either. But at the very, at the very moment that, that Peter denied Jesus as the Christ in Mark 8, 30, when he, when he acknowledged him as being the Messiah, you are the Son of God, Mark 8, 29, Jesus said, in effect, it's not what you think. Don't tell anyone. You don't understand. That's verse 30 of the same chapter. In part, Jesus was saying, you know, you believe me. You believe me when it was easy, when it was the popular thing to do, when it was exciting. But will you believe me now? Know that, now that you know more of the story. Will you believe me when it, I mean, when it really gets hard to do that, when the rubber hits the road and when all of a sudden I'm no longer popular among the people and when people began to talk about killing me and people start taking me to a cross and nailing me on that cross, are you going to be my disciples then? And you and I know the answer to that, that question because we've read the book. And the 12 were left with a hard decision to make. Would they continue to believe or would they not believe? Would they believe on the inside but not acknowledge that on the outside because of their fear that they might, they might wind up and meet the same fate that Jesus met? Jesus wanted to be perfectly plain with those men so that he didn't say, you must deny yourself some things. I hope you noticed that when we read the passage. He didn't say, there's some things that I want you to give up in order to be a good and faithful and committed disciple. The twelve had already done that. I mean, some of them had left their businesses. Some of them had left their families in order to follow Jesus during his ministry. Some had, had left every kind of security that they had ever known in order to follow him. In fact, Peter would say in Mark 10, verse 28, you can check it yourself. He would later say, we have left everything to follow you. So these men knew already what it meant to give up some things in order to follow Jesus. But Jesus knew and I hope that we know this 2,000 years later, that the deepest faith goes beyond denying yourself some things in order to say, I am a New Testament Christian, and gets us to the point, to the juncture in our, in our spiritual development where we deny ourselves. You see the difference? 
It's one thing to say, I've given up this and that and that in order to follow Jesus. It is quite another. By the way, it is also revolutionary and incredibly transformative and, and, and revolutionary to say, I have denied myself. I am no longer me anymore. Everything that I do, everything I think about, everything I dream up and hope for centers around a cross. Can we say that is true in our lives after all of these decades and centuries and millennia have passed? Well, that was, that was the challenge before the twelve apostles. And, and Jesus kept asking that question, sometimes of them and sometimes just within himself. Will these men still continue to believe even when the going gets rough? But Jesus knew that the deepest faith goes beyond just denying yourself some things. When you can deny it yourself, that's a kind of denial. By the way, there, there is a, a, a sacrifice, a self-denial that can bring spiritual pride if we're not careful. Have you ever heard anybody humble brag? You know, they, they brag about what they've given up in order to make something happen or maybe for their family. And, and, and we find that in Scripture even, a kind of self-denial that people could brag about. Remember in Luke chapter 18, there was a guy who was a Pharisee who boasted about his sacrifices when he was in the temple. You know, he said, I tithe, I, I fast, I pray, and boy, I sure am glad that I'm not like that tax collector on the other side of the room. That guy was bragging about, but still, you notice that every one of those sentences started with I. He was still fixated on himself. He had given up some things, but he had not given up himself. And I believe that's the central message that we need to get from Luke chapter 18. But Jesus was speaking of something far deeper than just giving things. And to give things to God without really giving ourselves, it's, it's just far too easy. You remember over in 2 Corinthians 8, 5, Paul commended and applauded the Macedonians for their liberal giving out of their deep poverty. And the key is found in verse 5 of 2 Corinthians 8. But they first gave themselves to the Lord. If, once you give yourself to the Lord, when you make that ultimate sacrifice, the giving of things, it's not going to be a problem. J.B. Phillips, in fact, translates Mark 8.34 as, He must give up all right to himself. That's pretty plain, isn't it? In fact, painfully plain. The word deny described there is the same word that Peter used in denying our Lord in Mark chapter 14, verse 68. When, the Lord, when he denied the Lord, that's the denial, Jesus says, I want you to have toward yourself when you grow in Christ. The painful lesson is that ultimately we have to choose one or the other. You see, we'll either deny ourselves or like Peter, we'll deny the Lord. Here's a second quick episode. I promise I'm going to make these second two very quick. Mark chapter 9. You got Mark chapter 9, verses 30 through 32. And then they departed from there, passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know it. That's, that's rather interesting. For he taught his disciples and said to them, The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And after he is killed, he will rise the third day. But they did not understand this saying, and they were afraid to ask him. So here they're passing through Galilee. At this point, Jesus clearly was no longer the hero of Galilee, 
people were no longer enamored of him. They were not following him. They were not, it was not a huge fan base that simply went around to say, you know, I was there on the particular day that Jesus happened to be teaching on the Sea of Galilee. No, people were beginning to, to he was, his ministry was losing its luster. And equally clear was the fact that the Herodian government was out, was out to kill him. We're going to remove, we're going to cut the head off the snake. We're going to remove any problems that we have and the threat to our own authority base by, by taking care of this Jesus fellow, and we're going to kill him. And so after Jesus succeeded in avoiding the tremendous political pressure of those 5,000 patriots in Mark chapter 6, you remember those who wanted to come and make Jesus a king by force, widespread desertions began among his closest disciples. So he's been given the opportunity to be king, and he turned it down. Why in the world, if what we think that he has come here to do is really his agenda, if that's his mission, then why in the world would he not accept the throne? That seems like the logical next choice. And that's when the desertions began. In fact, John may be speaking hyperbolically. I don't know if he's exaggerating to make a point. But in John 6, 66, he says plainly, and all of his disciples forsook him and fled. So now we've got people defecting. He, he's not doing what he thought we thought he was going to be doing or what he should be doing, and so we're leaving. Well, now at this point, in this episode, Jesus and the twelve were kind of keeping to the back roads. They crossed Galilee in secret, spending some time alone, just those 13 guys. And, and this particular meeting that we just read about was deliberate. The isolation was planned. It was very intentional. And the reason was Jesus was preparing to leave. But he didn't concentrate on getting his affairs in order. He wasn't doing all the things that you and I would do if we learned that our days were limited and that we were about to die. In fact, he focused on the 12. He prepared them for his departure. Wasn't worried about himself. He was worried about how they were going to handle it. And the question in his mind was, would they, would they continue to believe once he was gone? Harry Emerson Fosdick wrote, It is cynicism and fear that freezes life. And it is faith that thaws it out, releases it, and sets it free. I believe that's right. Jesus had invested his time and his energy and his very life in the twelve, but to what end? Would their fear freeze the mission? Or would they allow their faith to carry it through to the end? That was the question. And then finally, the last episode, look at Mark chapter 10, and then we're through. Mark chapter 10, 32 through 34. I'm waiting on you. And I don't even have it. Here we go. Mark 10. I did say Mark 10, right? 32 through 34. Now, they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. Jesus was going before them. Pay particular attention to the wording here. And Jesus was going not with them, but before them. And they were amazed. And as they followed, they were afraid. Amazement has morphed into fear. And then he took the twelve aside again and began to tell them the things that would happen to him. Behold, or see, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will, will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and they will scourge him and they spit on him and kill him, and the third day he will rise again. I don't know how you would have felt if you were one of the 12 apostles and you were listening to those words, and it's almost like, Lord, we don't really need that much detail. 
It's bad enough that you've said now for the third time that I'm going to die. You don't have to tell me all the specifics and how much spit's going to be on you. But the Lord was really spelling it out. Here's what's going to happen. Because he was concerned about will they continue to believe or will they desert their belief once I'm nailed to that cross. So there's tension in the air. I mean, I I can see tension all over these three verses that we just read. And the words on the way to Jerusalem highlighted the goal of Jesus' very determined and intentional journey. We're going to Jerusalem, guys, and you need to go with me. And the description of Jesus leading the way kind of pictures him stepping out far ahead of the twelve. Jesus is lost in his thoughts. He's immersed in his ministry. He's looking forward to the days that that are to come. And and the explanation of the disciples' attitude as afraid, I think, just amplified the tension. So picture the two groups. Jesus, a lonely figure walking out ahead, sure of his destiny, relentless in his mission, and the twelve who are astonished and afraid, and they're lagging behind. They're not even walking with Jesus as a company and in no hurry to get to Jerusalem if what Jesus had predicted was actually going to come true. The closer, the closer Jesus got to his cross, the more visible was the difference between his mission and theirs. This is not what we signed up for. This is not what we thought you came to do. Die on a cross. Be cursed and spit upon I really didn't know it was going to turn out like this. Three very different episodes that we've looked at this morning. Three predictions of death. Each consecutive announcement. The picture just gets grimmer and grimmer. For example, Mark 8.31, he makes the first shocking announcement that he's to be killed. Mark 9.31, he predicts the tragedy of betrayal. Mark 10.34, he details the torture and the ridicule that he must endure. What he's doing is he's kind of He's spoon-feeding the apostles. He's pacing them, giving them a little more each time, knowing that they're not able to digest it all at once, and so I'm going to give you a little bit at a time. But even with the picture growing darker, and even when Jesus felt consumed with the task ahead, he remained true to his mission of training and educating and equipping the twelve. He was always, until his dying breath, concerned about the twelve and how they were going to handle things once he was gone. I'm just telling us this morning. 2,000 years later, as we sing that song, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Even today, maybe I should say especially today, we ask, we're asking ourselves the same questions, or at least we ought to be. Are we ready to go to the cross? The cross, his atoning death, that was the center of his mission. Were the apostles in denial? I, absolutely. I, I think we all have to agree that they were, but his mission had to be reproduced in the twelve or else it was going to end at the cross. They were the ones specifically selected and appointed by him to carry on his work and to grow the church once he had left this planet. And his mission, here's the hard part. And this may be the hardest lesson in this series that we'll be talking about. Is that same thing has to be reproduced in our hearts and lives today. If we don't carry on his mission, guess what folks, it dies. 
If we don't speak a word for Jesus, if we don't take the opportunity to be able to lead others into the kingdom of Christ where they too can have their sins covered by the blood of Jesus Christ, nobody else is going to tell them. It is our responsibility, it is our grand privilege to do that, to share the good news with everyone we come in contact with. The apostles finally understood our faith, which probably began with excitement. We've had some wonderful well, all of the baptisms are wonderful, but lately, especially when some of our young people have been baptized in Christ, the excitement, the, the euphoria is just so obvious on their faces when they come up out of the water. And, and, and many of us could remember exactly how we felt the day that we were baptized into Christ. It begins with all of that excitement and all that joy and all that confidence. And it, and it has to continue as we get closer and closer to our own cross. There once lived a man in a great forest who spent his days cutting wood. He had, as a result of all that effort, stacked up huge walls of wood next to his cabin, enough to last him for several winters. And, and, and in, the, in his library, a great library, were many books on the purpose and the use of fire. I'm, I'm just saying that he had amassed all of the tools and all the materials about fire and about how to light a fire and kindle a fire and keep it going, and yet he was still cold. And he stayed in the dark because he had everything that he needed except the spark. I'm asking us this morning, do we have the spark that ignites our bones and keeps us moving forward with the mission of Jesus Christ? You know, today we can amass tons of Christian tools and religious equipment and yet we can still lose the confidence that we had at first. That's the way the Hebrews writer expressed it in Hebrews 3.14, that spark of faith that will ignite the Christian life and keep it forevermore burning. The question I'm asking us this morning, and I hope the question that you're asking yourself at this point is, will we continue to believe? Will I continue to believe even when it's hard to do so, when the excitement I first felt upon becoming a Christian has died down and, and when it seems like the difficulties in, in living the Christian life began, began to be great. Well, I continue to believe even when others are not, when my faith seems to be a, a solitary faith and, and when the crowds began to thin out and when others actually have encouraged me to quit, why don't you just give it up? And when I'm tired of it all and when I'm bone weary from the battle and will I continue to believe when I don't completely understand and when it goes against my views and against my own personal aspirations? Will I continue to believe when God doesn't seem to be there anymore for me or even for those I love when I can't, when I can't sense his presence, when I feel abjectly alone in my life and when I don't understand how that Jesus could possibly be with me in a situation in which of my own devising where I got myself in trouble by poor choices that I've made. How can Jesus be with me then? What I'm saying is it's one thing to believe in Jesus when the sun is shining and when the birds are singing, but will we follow him to the cross? Will we take up our own cross? Will we continue to follow him when the night grows dark and believing in him and following in him becomes the most difficult thing that you have ever done in your life? Are we ready to take up our cross? And follow him today. In one of the most amazing biographies that I have ever read, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, out of probably a thousand page biography, there's one line that stands out. Bonhoeffer said, when Jesus calls a man, he bids him come and die. 
And that really is true. We, we may be called upon to die for him physically. Jesus said that's, that's a part of the, of the process. That's part of the assignment. Remember Revelation 2.10? Jesus, through John, said, Be faithful unto, that is, unto the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. You need to be willing to die for Jesus when you make the commitment to follow him. But most of us will never have to make that decision. But we are dying to him when we become Christians. Romans 6 says that you, the old man of sin dies when you repent, when you're buried with Christ in baptism. So there's the, the death of the old man of sin, and then there's the burial, and then there's the resurrection to walk in newness of life. Will you die to yourself so that you can live for Christ? If so, we bid you come while we stand, while we sing.